Y'all can go ahead and be seated. And as you take your seats, go ahead and pull out your Bibles. We're going to be continuing with our uh, study. Our main series is Majoring in the Minors. Currently, we are in the uh, Minor Prophet of Amos. And we're at chapter 7. So as you find your spot in Amos chapter 7, let's ask the Lord to bless our time in His Word. Heavenly Father, we... We come and we turn to your word, Father God, because it is our daily bread, Father. Your word is the very food that we need for our lives to sustain us. For with earthly food, we eat and we hunger again, but when we hang on to you, Father, we never hunger again, for you satisfy us. Lord, we ask now as we turn to your word that you would bless that time, that you would bless us from your word, that your word would have its transformational power in our lives. But Father, I also pray that you allow us to allow your word to be that measuring rod in our lives as well, Father God, that we would uphold ourselves according to your word. Because it is your word. Help us to do this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we uh, turn to Amos chapter 7, we are uh, leaving his sermons, per se, and going into the visions that God has given him. And as we're going to cover today, we're going to cover three visions. And in these three visions, what I believe that the Lord is saying through Amos, and essentially saying to us this morning is a warning about measuring up. Now, we use measurements and metrics for all sorts of different things, um, methods and purposes, but the one thing that we use all measurements for is to measure up. We are trying to find out how something compares. Whenever you're building something or whenever you're trying to uh, uh, start something, you want to make sure that everything measures up. The, the measurement standard matters. That's why the measurement is necessary. It distinguishes between that which fits and that which doesn't. Now, there's many different ways to measure. You can measure in feet. You can measure in inches. You can measure in um, intelligent quotient if you're measuring IQ. Um, there's many different ways to measure, but in order for the measurement to mean anything, there has to be a standard. Any carpenter who has done any carpentry for any length of time knows the problem with this. No two tape measures measure the same. If you've ever wondered why, well, I measured everything twice, I cut once, well, if you're using two different tape measures you're going to get two different lengths. If you can't see that there, that um, one inch mark is about one eighth of an inch off. And as you carry it down the line, it gets further and further and further. And so in life, we as people, we like to see how we measure up. Guys, ever since they're in grade school, who's faster? Who's smarter? Who's quicker? Girls, Who's prettier? Who's more smart? Who has the better hair? Whose hair is curly? Whose hair is straight? 
We, we take all these standards of measurement and we, we go to measure up. Are they as good as us? Are they as funny as us? Are we as good as them? Are we as funny as them? Those who have a, dis, uh, a disposition to feeling bad about themselves, they're always going to go and they're going to compare themselves to everybody in the world who's better than them. They're going to go compare themselves to the A-list photographs of Instagram, the specific chosen ones that is one out of millions that could have been taken, but they chose that one. Those who feel better about themselves are going to go and they're going to go find the the worst of the worst and they're going to say, I'm better than them. Spiritually, we all come up with different ways to measure ourselves to evaluate if we measure up. We, we have many different methods. Do, according to this, I'm a spiritual person. According to how this person is, I'm spiritual. Compared to them, I'm spiritual. But by comparing ourselves to those around us, we give ourselves a false idea of measuring up. We get a false sense that we measure up when we don't actually We're using the wrong measuring standard when we compare ourselves to each other. That leads to self-righteousness. It leads to us being turned off from hearing the truth because nobody can tell us truth because if we are better than them, why would we listen to them? When the actual standard is being applied, we ignore it. But the actual standard that we need to measure up to is God's standard. Amos in chapter seven goes from his sermon messages to his prophetic visions in speaking with the nation of Israel. Amos is given five visions. And as I said, we're going to look at the first three. These first three call out Israel that God declares that he will judge between them, those who measure up and those who don't, those who don't measure up will be judged. As we look at this message from long ago about how the nation measured up to the true standard, God's standard, my prayer is that we would let God's word work in us to make sure that we are using the correct measuring standard in our life and for that standard to truly reveal how we measure up in our walk with God. Starting in verse 1, says, the Lord showed me this. He was forming a swarm of locusts at the time when the spring crop first began to sprout, after the cutting of the king's hay. When the locusts finished eating the vegetation of the land, I said, Lord God, please forgive. How will Jacob survive since he is so small? And the Lord relented concerning this. It will not happen, he said. The Lord showed me this. The Lord God was calling for a judgment by fire. It consumed the great deep and devoured the land. And then I said, Lord God, please stop. How will Jacob survive since he is so small? The Lord relented concerning this. This will not happen either, said the Lord God. He showed me this. The Lord was standing there by a vertical wall with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord asked me, what do you see, Amos? I replied, a plumb line. The Lord said, I am setting a plumb line among my people Israel and I will no longer spare them. Isaac's high places will be deserted and Israel's sanctuaries will be in ruins. I will rise up against the house of Jeroboam with a sword 
Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent word to King Jeroboam of Israel saying, Amos has conspired against you right here in the house of Israel. The land cannot endure all his words. For Amos has said this, Jeroboam will die by the sword and Israel was certainly going to exile from the homeland. Then Amaziah said to Amos, go away, you seer, flee to the land of Judah, earn your living and give your prophecies there. But don't ever prophesy at Bethel again, for it is the king's sanctuary in a royal temple. So Amos answered Amaziah and said, I was not a prophet or the son of a prophet. Rather, I was a herdsman and I took care of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock and said to me, go prophesy to my people in Israel. Now hear the word of the Lord, you say, do not prophesy against Israel. Do not preach against the house of Isaac. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. Your wife will be a prostitute in the city. Your sons and daughters will fall by the sword. Your land will be divided up with a measuring line. You yourself will die on pagan soil and Israel will certainly go into exile from its homeland. There's a couple of things that I believe that the Lord is saying through this about measuring up. Number one, there's the things that will not, which will not be. That will, which will not be. When you're measuring something and you measure a line and you go to make a cut, everything that's after that cut is waste. You, you throw it out. It's not going to happen. You're not going to use it. You, you may use it in another one if it, if it meets the cutting line, but if it's too small or whatever to use, it's gone. If we look at the uh, first two visions, Amos says, the Lord God showed me this, that he was forming a swarm of locusts at the time of the spring crop first began to sprout after the cutting of the king's hay. When the locusts finished eating the vegetation of the land, I said, Lord God, please forgive. How will Jacob survive since he's so small? And the Lord relented concerning this. It will not happen, he said. The Lord God showed me this. The Lord God was calling for a judgment by fire. It consumed the great deep and devoured the land. Then I said, Lord God, please stop. How will Jacob survive since he's so small? The Lord relented concerning this. This will not happen either, said the Lord God. So as we can see, Amos is given two visions. The first vision is of the Lord forming a swarm of locusts at the time of the spring crop when it first begins to sprout, which is the time after the cutting of the king's hay. Now these locusts, they're being readied for that time after the king has already had his harvest. That's the first crop. The second crop is just now beginning to sprout up. It's not even ready for harvest yet, but here is this swarm of locusts. This is the nation's most vulnerable time of the year. After this crop, there is no season left with which to grow. There's no season left for harvesting. If this crop is lost, the people would have nothing to eat until the following season if they could survive. 
Amos, at the sight of this vision, saw the devastation left behind by the swarming locust. It said after the locust had done, the vegetation of the land had been consumed. At the sight of this terrible judgment, we remember that Amos himself was a farmer in agriculture. He could sympathize with the judgment and sympathize with the devastation it would cause. And so Amos cried out for the Lord God. He said, please forgive. This locust plague is so timed that survival would be impossible. It was out of the question. The Lord had to forgive in order for them to survive. At Amos's prayer for Jacob to survive, I want you to see what happens The Lord relented concerning the judgment and the vision. The Lord replied, it will not happen. Now, relented means to cease an activity, but it carries with it in the original language an implication that relenting is a gracious act. He didn't have to relent, but he did. It also suggests that the turning away from a previous decision is because one has been deeply stirred by the appeal of another. My brother and sister in Christ, I want you to understand, your prayers affect the heart of God. And he has chosen that our prayers would have that effect. We don't overpower or overrule God, but God has chosen that in the prayers of his people that he would be moved, his heart is moved by the people. We read that Amos prayed and the Lord relented and we ask ourselves, is it that simple? That's a hard question because I will tell you, we don't necessarily change God's mind in something that he's willed to have happen. But there are times where God has willed, this will happen if this doesn't happen. And so he sets aside and allows for that choice to be made. How are the people going to respond? Are they going to receive the word or are they going to reject the word? Because if they reject the word, this is what they get. And so we have to believe that if Amos didn't pray, God would not have relented. And this is a bird's eye view for how much prayer changes things. David Guzik I like what he had to say about this. He said, we may debate endlessly about how this incident reflects on the issues of predestination and human responsibility. But clearly we're left with the impression that the plague either came or was held back based on the prophet's prayer. We, we don't know what's happening behind the scenes, but we know what the scripture declares to us and it declares that Amos prayed and God changed. Amos's heart agonized for the people. He prayed and he stood in the gap. And what he did when he stood in the gap is he joined a long group of intercessors. Abraham, if you remember, stood in intercessory prayer over Sodom and Gomorrah's destruction. He said, Lord, if you find 50 righteous people, would you still destroy it? And God said, no, I won't destroy it if there's 50 righteous. And then Abraham thinks about it and he goes, you know what? It's Sodom and Gomorrah. I better see what else. Like he goes all the way down to 10. If you find 10 people, would you not destroy it? And God says, I would not destroy it for 10 righteous.
We have Moses. Moses in the wilderness. Started to understand a little bit about what God goes through when God chooses a specific people and says, follow me, stay straight with me. And the people go, you know what? We're tired of what you give us, God. This is terrible. Moses even got to the point, he goes, God, why did you, why did you bring me these stiff-necked people? But there's a point in there when they, while Moses on Mount Sinai receiving the commandments from the Lord, there's a point at which the people gathered Aaron, their priest, and they said, we don't know what happened to Moses. We need a new God. And Aaron said, no, 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 we're all going to settle. No, Aaron said, give me, your, give me all your gold. I'll make you a God. He fashioned them a God. And when Moses came down, the, the Lord said, you better go down there because I'm angry and I'm upset. And time and time again, Israel turned their backs on the Lord. And finally, when they got to the promised, they were supposed to go into the promised land. They turned again. They said, Moses, why did you lead us out here into the desert to die? What did God do? He didn't have enough graves in Egypt. And God said, okay, that's it. I'm done. He said, Moses, I'm going to kill them all. But I'll keep you and I'll start a whole new nation with you. And after dealing with the people in the wilderness for so long, nobody would have blamed Moses if he said, okay, let's do it. But Moses is recorded in scripture as having the same heart that God has. Where Moses says, if you don't go with us, Lord, we don't want to go. If you're going to start over with another people, Lord, uh, let me be a curse, but forgive them. We see it with Samuel. We see it with Elijah. We even see it in the New Testament when Paul wrote Romans chapter 9. Paul said, if only I could be accursed so that my brethren could be saved. The Lord is looking for those who are willing to stand in the gap. Those who would pray that these things would not be. Ezekiel 22.30, God, God speaks through his prophet. He says, I search for a man among them who would repair the wall and stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land so I might not destroy it. But I found no one. God's looking for those who would stand in the gap. When we see a nation coming under judgment by God, we, our reaction shouldn't be, oh yeah, go get them, Lord. It should be the same understanding if I were in that same position. To fall into the hands of an of a, of a all-powerful God is a terrible thing. We should never wish it on anybody. In Psalm 106, we see that like Amos, when Moses prayed, this is what the Lord said. He said, so he would have destroyed them if Moses, his chosen, had not stood before him in the breach, in the gap, to turn his wrath away from destroying them. When we agonize over other people, falling into the hands of God and we pray, we can change things. Not that we're ever going to make God not bring judgment on the world, but there's a time that we live in right now in which God desires the salvation of men. And he has made that way of salvation possible through the Lord Jesus Christ by his sacrifice on the cross. God is looking for those who would stand in the gap and pray on behalf of the blood of Christ. 
We read next in Amos' second vision that the Lord God had given him concerning the nation of Israel. And the Lord God showed Amos that he's calling for a judgment by fire. And this fire, it says it consumed the deep and devoured the land. What that's saying is this fire was not extinguished by any of the oceans. Those were burned up. And the land was burned up. It consumed everything. And again, Amos, at the sight of this complete and total judgment, this complete and total judgment, this vision said everything will be destroyed. Nothing will remain. He says, Lord, stop. This consuming fire, Jacob is so small, he would never survive. And again, the Lord relented and he said, this will not happen either. You see, what you see throughout all the prophets, none of the prophets ever went and prophesied, except for one, his name was Jonah. None of the prophets ever went and prophesied and enjoyed giving the message. None of them desired to see the destruction of anyone. In fact, the prophet was called on many times in the vision, in the prophecy, to intercede for the people. God would call them specifically, pray for them that I will not destroy them. Intercession is part of the prophet's calling. Intercession is part of our calling. I'm not saying that we're prophets, but I'm saying that God has called us to intercede. Amos, in praying, he doesn't pray against the judgment. He doesn't say, God, how dare you judge? You have no right to judge. What Amos does is he appeals to the heart of the Father. He says, Lord, just forgive. Relent. Jacob won't survive. He never said Jacob is innocent. He never said Jacob has followed all your covenant. He knew Jacob was guilty. But he pleaded against the utter destruction of Jacob and his plea was heard. And Because one interceded with the Lord and stood in the gap, total destruction is ruled out and hope is established. And we see this in our Lord Jesus Christ as well. Before he went to the cross, before he was destroyed on the cross, he stood in the gap. He prayed for all those in the world that would come to know him. He prayed for all those in the world that the Lord would bring. He prayed that the Lord would keep them, that they would not be destroyed. Then when he was on the cross and he was breathing his last breath, he prayed, Lord, forgive them. He didn't say forgive them because they're innocent. He said forgive them because they're ignorant. They don't know what they're doing. The Lord God is looking for those who will stand in the gap. And when we stand in the gap and we pray, hope is established. We see here that there's a standard of measure. However, The third vision says, he showed me this. The Lord was standing by a vertical wall with a plumb line in his hand. The Lord asked me, what do you see, Amos? A plumb line. The Lord said, I'm setting a plumb line among my people and I will no longer spare them. Isaac's high places will be deserted and Israel's sanctuaries will be in ruins. I will rise up against the house of Jeroboam with a sword. So God gives a vision to Amos and the vision is God is standing next to a vertical wall and he has a plumb line in his hand. And a plumb line, all it is, is a simple 
line of cord with a lead weight at the bottom that you would hang off from a point and it, gravity would bring it straight down. And you use that because as it, gravity brings it down, it brings it down in a straight line. So that is your straight line and you measure it up against the vertical wall. God says he's setting his plumb line among his people. The plumb line is used to determine if the wall is straight up and down. The plumb line is also used to determine if the wall had over time after it was built, has settled or moved and is now leaning. They could have used a plumb line for the leaning Tower of Pisa. They don't need it anymore. Everybody can see it's leaning. What happens when a wall settles and starts tilting, it needs to be torn down. It's no longer structurally safe. It's no longer structurally sound. The plumb line is what is used to see that, and the plumb line is what is going to be used to determine if the nation measures up. Now, here's the thing about the nation of the kingdom of Israel. When the kingdom was established... It was established plumb. They were brought into the land. They were given the land. They were given the law and they were told to follow the covenant. The covenant promise established them as a righteous and upright nation. And as they observed that, they were righteous and upright. The plumb line that established their straightness and moral uprightness was the law and the grace found within the law. As those who were redeemed, they were to obey the law. But equally as his redeemed, they were under the blood. And so when the law could not be obeyed and when the law could not be followed, they had the sacrificial system to be under the blood. So that even in failure of obedience, they could still live upright in the presence of God. In holding these two in balance, that establishes the true upright life of God's people. And it keeps our extremes in check. What are the extremes? Well, on one side of the pendulum, you have legalism. Legalism makes obeying the law everything. And on the other side, you have ritualism, in which makes observation and sacrifice of worship everything. Now, the northern kingdom was established plumb. This is something that I learned this week as I deep dove into this. I, I, I didn't realize this, and maybe you guys have missed it also. I've always been heard that the nation, when it went into civil war and separated, that the northern kingdom was instantly evil. In 1 Kings 11.35, we have the Lord speaking, saying, I will take 10 tribes of the kingdom from his son, from David's son, from Solomon." and give them to you. I will give one tribe to his son so that my servant David will always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city I chose for myself to put my name there. He says this, but I will appoint you, Jeroboam, and you will reign as king over all you want and you will be king over Israel. After that, if you obey all I command you, Walk in my ways, do what is right in my sight in order to keep my statutes and my commands as my servant David did, I will be with you and I will build you a lasting dynasty just as I built for David and I will give you Israel. 
From the birth of the northern kingdom, the nation was established as plumb with God if they would follow his statutes and commands. He laid the foundation. He set their course. The question is, would they maintain the plumb line? Or would they settle? Well, we know from history, we know from God's word, what they chose to do. The plumb line, God says, I am setting the plumb line among my people, among my nation. I'm going to measure how true they are to the pattern and of my word and how upright they are in character and conduct. Prophet Isaiah also had this measuring line. He says, I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the mason's level. Hail will sweep away the false refuge and water will flood your hiding place. So the Lord declares according to his plumb line, Israel, the nation, is out of plumb. And therefore, like a wall out of plumb, must be torn down. God leaves no room this time for Amos to intercede. And there are times when God does not want us to intercede and he will take away that time of intercession. He says directly to Amos, I will no longer spare them. The nation was too crooked and too far gone and there was no hope. But the difference here is God isn't going to completely and totally wipe out the people. But he will completely and totally wipe out the nation, the kingdom, and the high places. When Jeroboam became the king of the northern kingdom of Israel, he surveyed the political spectrum He said, you know what? Right now I have the favor of the people. We're fresh in this split. But the Lord God has called people to go down to Jerusalem to worship. If they keep going down to the other kingdom and they continue to worship and they have that brotherhood and camaraderie with those terrible people of Judah, then I won't have their loyalty. They'll want to go down there and then my kingdom will be no more. You see, as soon as he was given a kingdom, his whole heart was set upon keeping his kingdom. So, though the law of Moses called for the people to worship in Jerusalem, Jeroboam didn't want the people traveling to Jerusalem. And so he didn't want them desiring the old days. He didn't want them wanting to be united under David's family once again. So Jeroboam, he comes up with a brilliant idea. He gets two golden calves because one in the wilderness wasn't enough for them to learn their lesson. He gets two golden calves, and he puts them in alternate places for worship. He puts one in Bethel, and he puts one up as far north as Dan. 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 28. The king sought advice. Then he made two golden calves, and he said to the people, going to Jerusalem is too difficult for you. Israel, here's your gods who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Jeroboam, either to convince himself or the people or both, he used the excuse of difficulty to go to Jerusalem in order to set up false places of worship. Worship and religion for the first time had now become a matter of convenience. Forgot that one. Be careful in changing how you worship and serve God because of convenience. 
it causes the walls to settle and lean and move out a plumb. Observing worship of God, it's about his plumb line of righteousness, not our comfort, not our convenience. The goal of religion, when it becomes convenience, and in the convenience, religion becomes non-judgmental. And what you have is, Jerusalem is fine for worship. Bethel is fine for worship. Dan is fine for worship. And what you have is, all roads lead to God. And they don't. but without anything to differentiate between the two. And if there's no standard, how do we know what measures up and what doesn't? Some people would ask this, is it not enough for us to have wonderful times of worship? What about solid biblical teaching? What about if we had correct theology? Or what if we had all those things together? Is that enough? No. Here's why. Because unless it translates into a transformed life that seeks to live out according to God's call and God's standard, it's worthless. It doesn't measure up. So not only was the church, the, the uh, temple, the, the worship in Israel corrupt because the people and their leaders were crooked, but the government was corrupt as well. Having failed to measure up to the plumb line, the nation's chief structures, mainly the religious high places and the political, Jeroboam's kingdom, both would be demolished. The last thing I want us to look at is that plumb line will reveal each one. Look at verse 10. Verse 10, Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent word to King Jeroboam of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you right here in the house of Israel. The land cannot endure all his words, for Amos has said this, Jeroboam will die by the sword, and Israel will certainly go into exile from its homeland. Then Amaziah said to Amos, Go away, you seer. Flee to the land of Judah. Earn your living and give your prophecies there, but don't ever prophesy at Bethel again, for it is the king's sanctuary and royal temple. Amos answered Amaziah, I was not a prophet or the son of a prophet. Rather, I was a herdsman and I took care of sycamore figs, but the Lord God took me from following the flock and said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel. Now hear the word of the Lord. You say, do not prophesy against Israel. Do not preach against the house of Isaac. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. Your wife will be a prostitute in the city. Your sons and daughters will fall by the sword. Your land will be divided up with a measuring line. You yourself will die on pagan soil and Israel will certainly go into exile from its homeland. What we see here, two people, two people that claim to be the religious spokesperson for God. Amaziah, he was the priest at Bethel. And what he did was he sent word to King Jeroboam, accusing Amos of conspiring against him. And what he did was he took Amos's message, and instead of attributing it to God's words like Amos did, he declared that it was the words of Amos only. 
and therefore taking out the divine inspiration. And he said, Amos has said King Jeroboam will die by the sword. It's not the same. Amos said, I, the Lord, will rise up against the house of Jeroboam with a sword. Completely different messages, right? One says, Amos is coming after you, King Jeroboam. The other says, King Jeroboam, watch out, God has you in his sights. Amaziah has the opportunity to hear and heed the word of God proclaimed by Amos, and here's what he chooses. He says, I don't care. I'm going to ignore that word. I reject that word. It's not convenient for me. That word that Amos is bringing says, I'm doing wrong. And what we see, history is full of hireling religious leaders who are great enemies of the true leaders of God. When they could find no charge of false doctrine, immorality, or otherwise, they would accuse them of conspiring against the government. Same accusation the Jews used against Jesus. They couldn't get him on anything that he had done to break the law. Instead, they said, he incites a riot. He seeks to rebel. And then Amaziah, as he rejects the word of God and says, this is not comfortable, he says, you know what? You're conspiring against the government. I'm with the government. He says, Amos, leave. Don't prophesy here anymore. Just go away, you seer. Flee to Judah. Earn your living and give your prophecies there. Don't prophesy in Bethel again. This is the king's sanctuary and temple. Amaziah could care less what Amos was saying. He didn't care if it was true or not. He didn't care what it meant or, or what he should do in spite of that word. He, he had a good job. He was comfortable. Everything was going well. Society was awesome. How could he complain? He wanted to maintain his comfort level. Amos and the word that he brought from the Lord did not allow that. The, Lord, the word of the Lord wasn't convenient. There's too many in the church that are like Amaziah. We're comfortable Christians and God's word and God's plumb line is inconvenient. We don't take our faith or his call seriously. We go to church on Sundays. We give our tithes that are comfortable and that are convenient, never giving out of a cheerful heart, but doing it out of obligation and going, you owe me, God. We do our Sunday morning duty, but it's inconvenient, it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable to allow the Bible to influence how do we spend our money? How do we spend our time? How do we treat others? How are we in private? We believe in a separation of church. We, we fight against separation of church and state. But we believe and we do that, we, we show that we believe that because we have a separation of church and every day. That's a concept totally foreign to those who have truly come to know the gospel of Jesus Christ and has been so captivated by it that it consumes their life. So if I'm one of these casual Christians, what am I to do? Maybe that's a question you have. I can tell you what most of us do. We find folks who think like us. 
We surround ourselves with people who will tell us everyday life that we are good and that we go to church. And as long as we do that and, and we try to find good, that um, we can make ourselves feel good. And rather than forcing us to be confronted with inconvenience and truth and uncomfortable word of God, Or we can take the word of God at face value, apply it to our lives and allow it to be the authority for us that tells us whether we measure up or not. It's nothing new. Amaziah did this. He didn't like the word. He said, Amos, you need to leave. You need to go away. I I don't want to hear you anymore. You need to be quiet. In Paul's day, he said that this day was coming, that people no longer put up with God's word. And Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy, he said, for the time will come when people will not tolerate sound doctrine but according to their own desires will multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear what they want to hear. That's someone who declares to be a priest for God, someone who's supposed to be the representative of God to the people in worship. The other side, you have a picture of the prophet of God, Amos. Amos answers Amaziah. He says, I was not a prophet. It wasn't my chosen profession. It's not what I was doing. He says, I wasn't even the son of a prophet. I don't even come from a line of prophets. I wasn't trained. I wasn't taught. It's not what I would have chosen for myself. He says, I was a herdsman. I took care of sycamore figs. I had a job and I was doing good at it. I didn't choose this calling. I didn't get trained for it. But a greater authority called me and commanded me saying, go prophesy to my people in Israel. To those who measure up to the plumb line, it matters what God commands. Because God commanded not only what Amos would say, but where he would say it. This is why he had to be in Israel. He couldn't go to Judah. God said, you will go to Israel and proclaim what I tell you. The authority was not Amaziah's. The authority was not Amos's. The authority was and is the Lord God. So the Lord had spoken and Amos said, I will obey. And because Amaziah told Amos not to prophesy and not to preach, because Amaziah said, I will not hear that message anymore, the Lord said judgment that was coming to Israel would happen personally to Amaziah. The plumb line is what's going to be used to check the people. It's not going to be how you measure up to each other. It's how you measure up to the plumb line. God's not going to find the the best and the brightest in Israel and see how everyone measures up to them. Neither is God going to find the most holy in Israel and see how everybody measures up with them. He's going to use his plumb line, the same standard for every single person. You either meet it and exceed it or you fall short of it. God's plumb line is his word. He's given his word to his people and God's going to check them out to see what did they do with his word? A builder's plumb line tr- uh, tests the true straightness of a wall. The Lord's plumb line is going to tra- test the true character and relationship of the people and the call of God upon their lives. The most important lesson you and I can learn from this, the most important thing that I think God wants us to walk away is, the question is not how am I doing compared to him or her? How are we doing as a church to other churches com- in, in the community? The question is this, am I living out God's call on my life? 
Am I walking in obedience to God's will for my life? doesn't matter if everybody else is walking with God or without God. What are you doing? Notice where God is setting his plumb line. He's not setting it between the church and everybody else. He's not setting it between Israel and everybody else. God set his plumb line in the midst of his people. Those who are living their lives under the call of God. We have to start looking to that plumb line and stop looking to society. We need to stop looking to society for our approval, our affirmation, our validation. Our eyes need to be set on our king, tuned to his call alone. If we would take that time and energy that we spend in seeking the approval of people, the approval of society, the approval of government, and instead sought to know God's word, God's will, and God's commands, we would actually see our lives and our society transformed by the power of God's word. Had Amaziah responded to the message differently and repented, he might have been spared. He chose to align with an earthly monarch and asserted him against God and his messenger. If we ignore God's word, we will find ourselves revealed by the plumb line of God. In the New Covenant, I'm going to ask a couple of guys to come out and help me with the communion. We're going to hand out communion right now. Uh, Robert, if you could give me a hand, and um, Alex or Rob, Rob could help me too. If you guys could help um, pass out the communion. As we consider this plumb line, it's very easy to take that plumb line and know that it's God's word and take it and say, I have to obey God's word 100%. And if I fail at God's word, then I failed. But that takes you to the extreme of legalism. Do not fall in the extreme of legalism. But neither are we to ignore God's word. Here's what God has done in the new covenant. He set Christ, his son Jesus. He set him as the plumb line of the new covenant. No longer do we have to measure up by perfection according to the law's standards. But we measure up by whether or not we are covered by Jesus. For Jesus has met the standard. As we take of communion, I want you guys to hold it. We're going to partake of it together. And as you see these elements, remember that the death of Christ, his sacrifice on the cross for the forgiveness of sins, set the new plumb line. When you stand before God at the end of your life, or at the end of this age, if God comes back before we all uh, pass into the earth, if he comes back and takes us in an instant, we'll stand before God and here's the dividing line. Do you have Christ? Or are you trying to stand in your own righteousness? To stand in your own righteousness means you will fall short of the plumb line. To be covered in Christ, you meet and you exceed that plumb line. You remain true, straight, righteous, and upright because he has clothed you 
in his righteousness. And so Paul, when he instituted the Lord's Supper in the early church, he said, for I received from the Lord that which I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's take. For as often as you eat this bread, drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. And it's in the Lord's death that that new plumb line has been set. I invite you this morning as we finish with one more song, use that time if you have not come to that plumb line, if you have not come to the cross and ask Christ for forgiveness and put on his righteousness. Don't leave here today without doing that because that is the plumb line. That is what you will be measured against. Heavenly Father, we come before you. Lord, we thank you for your word and, and, and Lord, I pray that we would all have the strength to, to go back and, and that we would Allow your word to have its effect on us, Lord. Let us be like Amos, who when you spoke could do no other than what you spoke. Let us not be like Amaziah, who said, you know what, that's not comfortable. That's not convenient. I don't want that. May we accept your message and not reject it, Father. Accept your word and not reject it. In Jesus' name, amen.